Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Hour 2 of the Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde broadcast and podcast. Shout out to our listeners on KTalk 1640. And a special shout out to our podcast listeners who catch us any old time of day because they can do it. I know it's very convenient and actually it, it works out in, in our favor as well. So we have a lot to talk about. I promised I would open up the lines this hour. Here I go. 801-331-8113. 801-331-8113. I want to know who is it who keeps saying, hey, what do you think will happen next <laughs> in 2020? Because whoever's asking that question, would you please stop? I don't know if we want to know the answer to that question. It's it's like, you know, what 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 else could go wrong? Do we want to know? Are we tempting fate by even asking? See, I don't know for sure, but uh, if I if I had to put some money down, I would say we're probably looking at what locusts next, and then maybe water turning into blood. Oh, and then the election, in that order. All right, let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian, Sam calling. How are you? I am well. How are you, Sam? Oh, not too bad. Hey, I just wanted to throw out some observations. I uh, tune around a lot, and sometimes I'll listen to some of the mainstream talk shows to see what's going on. Anyway, I've been tuned by Russia. He had some black folks on there who were debating the issue you know, surrounding the riots. And as usual, one of the problems I find with the mainstream media, and I consider part of the mainstream media, is... Everybody's talking about white supremacy, white privilege, and uh, nowhere in the conversation, at least that I heard, did I hear anything about the fact that there's been a quiet push behind the scenes to militarize the police across the board. You know, they were, you know, they were talking about how blacks are unfairly treated versus whites with the police. You know, it always goes back to skin color. It's always the construct. If they can keep us all divided in the skin color arena. Uh, and they keep talking about white privilege, then it takes the spotlight off of what's really going on behind the scenes in the sense that there's a lot of people, certainly the uh, on the Democrat Party side, who promised all these black folks the moon and gave them a sock, which, you know, of course, in my opinion, it's not up to the government to be promising anybody anything, but, you know, they need to just get out of the way. But having said that, what I find particularly uh, particularly um, interesting out of this is that nobody really wants to go drill down into where this is really going and it's an overall effort to do two things and that's one to militarize the police make them more militarized that's where you see all the militarized vehicles now that police departments are getting under the 1033 program and the second part of it is is that nobody wants to talk about how in addition to the police being military uh, militarized is how the solutions always wind up robbing everybody of more freedom, and that's what everybody's missing out of all this, because the other thing that they want to do is federalize the police. And in a lot of these towns where they've had riots in the past, the federal government has come in and taken over those police departments all under the guise of solving these quote-unquote surface issues that everybody keeps wrangling over, when in reality we have a lot of agitators out there that are stirring the pot on this thing, as you covered and I've covered and various other people you know, and um, certainly um, in the area which I broadcast here, um, you've got much deeper issues than this than all these surface issues. And nobody wants to talk about the fact that 
what you're having here is a typical case of problem, reaction, solution. Problem, police out of control. That's the, that's the surface problem. Um, solution, everybody gets outraged, like what we had with this issue of, um, um, you know, this uh, police brutality case that we had here with this George Floyd. And the solution is always something that robs everybody in, in the end of their freedom. And I so badly, you know, it's one of those things that's so hard to get in on these shows. I so badly want to say, you know, let's quit fighting over black and white privilege and understand that everybody's being affected. When we had the COVID-19 deal going on here over the past uh, three months, I don't recall particularly blacks versus white businesses. Everybody got hurt in this whole thing, blacks and whites and everybody included when they got shut down by these governors. No, I hear you. It's I mean, look, on the one hand, I'm grateful that at least all the uh, COVID-19 stuff has been bumped off the, the news cycle for, yeah. for a little bit. Unfortunately, I think we've gone out of the frying pan and into the fire with what's happening now. Yeah, this is Operation Chaos is really what it is. Constantly keep the pot boiling so that everybody is always in a state of flux. And I guarantee you. If you trace all this back, a lot of this writing and stuff, you'll find some some guy in there throwing his money in there, the likes of George Soros and various others. I'm sure he's not the only one in the pot. But see, nobody in the mainstream wants to talk about this, and that's why when people like you and people like me and various others occasionally come out and expose all this stuff, then people have a hard time believing it because there's still too many people out there who still rely on the mainstream media. And I'm saying if you really want to get to the root of what's going on, you got to tune away from the mainstream media because yep. they're not going to get to the bottom of this. They're not supposed to. They're part of the problem. Well, and, and what they're going to be feeding you, along with whatever you know official narrative they're trying to uphold, is a steady diet of fear. And people do not think well when, when they are fearful. Sam, That's th- exactly right. Thank That's you, all I got. Thanks so much for the call. 801-331-8113. I'm grateful that uh, Sam mentioned uh, militarization of the police. That's kind of a touchy subject for a lot of people. But I am going to include in the show notes an excellent article from Brian Miller. This was originally published, published on Ammo.com. Um, I noticed that uh, Fee.org also has uh, what looks like maybe a condensed version of this. But it's a very thorough way of filling in some of the historical blanks as to how did our police start to look more and more like military units? How did we, when did we start seeing cops going around doing, uh, you know, their patrol in battle rattle as opposed to, you know, wearing the uniform and the Sam Brown belt and so forth? It's a gradual thing. It didn't come all at once. And that's why people aren't shocked as they should be. But for those who have been paying attention, it's been a very disturbing trend. And this article gives some terrific food for thought as well as answering some of the questions as to why would why would we want to blur that line of distinction between our nation's warriors in our armed forces and its peacekeepers or its peace officers in the police? Back to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Hello, is that me? Ray, go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, well, um, you know, if we think about the a gradual movement of militarizing the police, I mean, wow, um, wasn't there a time when peace officers only carried whistles and um, billy clubs? Yeah, at least at least the bobbies in London. That's I think that's traditionally how they were regarded. Yeah, well, the thing is, people, I think, are realizing that we're on a bullet train right now. 
and this bullet train, I mean, we don't want to derail it, and it's going fast, and I don't see there's any way to stop it. And this bullet train, you know, started 40 to 100 years ago, depending on how you want to split hairs. You know, but we're on this this train, and everybody's reacting. It seems like there's no level-headed people that, uh, you know, has studied history and understands where we went wrong and how we got here. And, um, you know, which way are we going to go from here? I I, I mean, you know, earlier I was talking about... um, the deep state, you know, and um, Antiva, and all kinds of competing interests, you know, is pretty aware, well everywhere in the world, you know, especially the key key places, you know, and the deep state is a rogue nation within a nation, not elected by the people, you know, of a constitutional republic. Yeah, I think so we're, we're starting. Had, we're starting to get a very strong sense of what it's like to deal with people who have unaccountable power, and and it's yes. not and it's not pretty. And and one of the most disturbing things, Ray, I don't know if you've seen this, is the the many places where I'm seeing videos of uh, you know Antifa and other uh, rioters destroying private property, and the police just pretty much take a knee. Well, we don't want to risk officer safety by going in here after these guys, and and yet when when someone tries to protect themselves. You know, they they are the ones who get handcuffed. Or if they try to drive away with a crowd of people breaking out their windows and trying to drag them from their car, the driver gets arrested. I don't get it. <laughs> well, well, you know, we can look at two things happening in the history. You know, very few people are aware of the depth of the Bundys. I mean, why would President Obama put aside $100 million dollars to go after a farmer with 100 acres, give or take. I mean, you know, and, and he, he came into power. How did he qu- quickly get so, par- you know, part of the deep state? And then look what's happening the last four years to President Trump. Oh, yeah. The deep state, you know. It's been nonstop hey. since he was elected. Ray, I'm going to move on from here. Thank you so much. I've got a couple of other articles I want to share here, too. One is on how uh, one good thing that's come from these riots is it is def- it's once again definitively proving that when it comes to protecting you and your property, the police are not going to be there in your moment of need. We'll talk about that when we re- return. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I want to share this article from Ryan McMacken. This is from the uh, Mises.org website. And, you know, I, I'm trying to find the bright spots. I, I was, uh, I, I'll admit, I was in a bit of a funk this weekend just going, holy cow. It is so sad to see what is happening. And even, even in Salt Lake City, which is just around the point of the mountain for me, uh, they're just some ugly Ugly stuff. I'm not even just talking about, you know, the police car burned, the other guy's car burned, Robin Hood, as we call him. The guy got out and was threatening protesters with an arrow. That was bad enough, but just truly ugly behavior. Spray painting. I mean, you know, I, I think the, the pinnacle of just, you know, how ugly can people get was uh, the uh, the lady who jumped up on the car, 
This is in front of hundreds of people, including children. I don't know why. People had kids out there. And uh, she first ripped her shirt up and, and bared her chest to the public. And when that wasn't enough, decided, okay, to show what, how I really feel, she stood on the uh, the police car that was overturned and defecated on it right there in front of everybody. It's just like, I don't know how it could get much more ugly than that. And, of course, the just the anger that's everywhere. There's not a lot to feel real encouraged about. But here's the bright spot, okay? You ready for the good news? The good news is that a lot of people made the connection in the last few days that the police will not be there to protect them or their property. And that's not to assign any, any bad motive to the police officers. What we have learned is a lesson that was learned, oh, about 28 years ago in Los Angeles in the L.A. riots. And that is, it doesn't take that much for police forces to become overwhelmed. Yeah, they may be able to control a particular intersection or a particular you know, block in town, but they are not going to be able to generally be where there is unrest when the unrest is that widespread. Now, I know that's that's kind of a daunting thought, and I've seen actually quite a few people in the last few days who have said, I'm thinking about maybe getting myself an AR-15. So if you've ever asked the question, why does anybody need an AR-15? Well, you have the answer. Because as much as the government promises, hey, you don't need one of those, why, we'll be here to protect you. <laughs> you just call 911, and we'll come running, and we'll bring friends. Well, maybe they will. If they're not too busy. But the first responsibility comes to you. Here's how Ryan McMacken puts it. He says looting and arson have followed what began as peaceful protests in response to the apparent killing of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin, a now former member of the Minneapolis Police Department. But he says whatever was, whatever was the spark that set off the current round of rioting in the Twin Cities area, it's clear that most property owners and residents will have to fend for themselves where riots have taken place. In other words, any unfortunate shopkeeper or resident who finds himself in the path of rioters ought to just assume the police won't be around to provide any protection from the mob. For example, the Minneapolis Star Tribune reports the police station on East Lake Street has been the epicenter of protests this week. Nearby, Minnehaha Lake Wine and Spirits, the target of looters the night before, was also set ablaze. On Wednesday night, a man was fatally shot and crowds looted and burned buildings on East Lake Street late into the night. Earlier in the day in St. Paul, looters broke windows, stormed through battered down doors and snatched clothes, phones, shoes and other merchandise from shops along University Avenue near the intersection of Pascal Street. Officers formed a barricade in front of Target, but police were absent a block away at TJ Maxx, where looters smashed down the door and fled with heaps of clothing piled on shopping carts. Now, Ryan McMacken points out here many business owners who now face destruction at the hands of rioters were already in trouble, right? Because of the lockdowns. They can scarcely afford this. From the Minneapolis Star Tribune, many of the shops destroyed along this stretch of East Lake Street are immigrant-owned businesses, many of which were already struggling during the coronavirus pandemic. Now it's worse, says Roberto Hernandez, who stood guard outside his nutrition store for five hours to fend off looters. Ryan McMacken says another man who was working to open a sports bar in the area later this year saw his bar destroyed. Needless to say, with only a few exceptions, the police weren't around to protect and serve. Now, admittedly, in cases like this week's riots, the police are heavily outnumbered. They're unable to provide any sort of general protection from rioters. Even if individual officers were engaging in heroic behavior to turn rioters away from potential victims, 
there would be little they could do to confront all of the offenders. But heroics or not, the outcome for the victims is the same. They have to rely on self-defense, formal private security, or private armed volunteers, which are likely to be labeled as vigilantes by a less-than-supportive press. A failure to protect taxpaying citizens from violence and crime in a wide variety of situations is standard operating procedure for police departments that are under no legal obligation to protect anyone and where officer safety is the number one priority. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we're ascribing evil motives to the individual officers. I think most people who get into law enforcement do it for the best of reasons. They do it because they feel the sense of duty or a desire to give back. I think they, they do it with the right things in mind. Many of them find, though, as they, as they are in the system and having to work through the system, that the system itself is it's a bureaucracy. And bureaucracies don't always do you know, what, uh, what is the best thing for people outside of that system. Even within the system, it can be very difficult for them. As Ryan McMacken puts it, he says, the lesson to be learned here is that the alleged social contract between citizens and the state is a one-way street. You pay taxes for police services, and the police may or may not give you anything in return. Legally, you cannot hold them responsible if you are harmed and they weren't there to prevent it. It's a well-established legal principle in the U.S., the police officers and police departments are not legally responsible for refusing to intervene in cases where private citizens are in imminent danger or even in the process of being victimized. The U.S. Supreme Court has made it clear that law enforcement agencies are not required to provide protection to the citizens who are forced to pay for police services year in and year out. In cases of civil unrest, he says, be prepared to receive approximately nothing from police in terms of protecting life, limb or property. During the 2014 riots that followed the police killing of Michael Brown, for example, shopkeepers were forced to hire private security, and many had to rely on armed volunteers for protection from looters. There's no police, one Ferguson shopkeeper told Fox News at the time. We trusted the police to keep it peaceful. They didn't do their job. More famously, shopkeepers during the Los Angeles riots defended their shops with private firearms. Where are the police? Where are the police? Shopkeeper Chang Lee whispered over and over from his rooftop perch. Lee would not see law enforcement for three days. Only fellow Korean-Americans who would be photographed by news agencies looking like an armed militia. Then you have the matter of officer safety coming first. During the Columbine school shootings in Colorado in 1999, the Sheriff's Department's first responders formed a perimeter outside the building and refused to enter because the situation was deemed too risky for law enforcement. Meanwhile, children inside were being slaughtered. Nearly 20 years later, law enforcement officers at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, cowered behind vehicles while students were murdered inside the school. But even in cases where police are willing to enter the premises and attempt to subdue violent criminals, the victim may find law enforcement officers to be of little help. According to 2008 data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, police response times to violence-related calls exceeded 11 minutes, one-third of the time. Things were no better 12 years earlier in 1996 when a similar survey was conducted. Now, 12 years after 2008, there's no reason to assume that anything has changed. The point here being, 11 minutes is a long time to wait when you're dealing with a violent criminal. Moreover, when police do respond, 
Don't expect competency necessarily. The cases of Atania Jefferson and Botham Jean both provide some helpful reminders. You remember, she was shot standing in her front room. He was shot by a police officer who entered the wrong apartment, thinking it was hers. So, I don't want to belabor it too much, but the the idea is, look, most often you're going to find the police will do the best they can under the circumstances. If an officer is available, why, they'll come. If they need more help, they'll call for more help on their radio, and it will come at 80 miles an hour. But the person who is in the place where the need to act is, is you. (laughs) You're the person who has to be capable of defending what is most precious to you and yours. That's more responsibility than some people want, but I'm telling you, it's a responsibility worth shouldering. There's peace of mind in doing so. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. All right, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. Let me open up those phones again. I just wanted to get through the piece from Ryan McMacken, 801-331-8113. I know it's, it, I probably sound more strident than I really want to, but I really think it's important that people understand that, uh, you know, um, y- we've been raised to believe, well, the policeman is your friend. And, and, and there's times where that could be the case. But it's also very true that, uh, you know, the, the police can't be there most often in your moment of need. And then there's the matter of the militarization of the police that uh, has has drawn this this line between the community and the law enforcement community to where there, there's a very powerful us versus them mentality. You don't even have to be doing something wrong to find yourself on the wrong end of the law. I mean, I look at it this way. The, the, the protests that have been going on, I in no way condone any of the violence or destruction of property. I think anybody who engages in that automatically forfeits any moral high ground that they thought they were occupying. But at the same time, when I see TV footage, like I saw out of Salt Lake City, of an old man standing on the street with a cane. I mean, he's not doing anything. And here comes a line of police officers telling everybody, everybody's got to move. You keep moving. And they come up to the guy and he turns to start walking and they shove him. They push him and he ends up stumbling and falling to the ground. And I'm like... Yeah, guys, you know, that uh, that whole thing about why people are out here protesting, that's the kind of crap that they're not happy about seeing. And you add to add to it the the consequences that arise from the existence of a more militarized or militaristic police force. You're more likely to see civil liberties violations. You're more likely to see uh, the ubiquitous use of, of surveillance or excessive use of force, shoving an old man with a cane on the ground. A very good example of this. You're more likely to see alienation of the community. You're more likely to see dogs being shot. Yes, really. There's actually a group out there called the Puppy Side Database Project that tracks how many dogs are killed by police. And then you've got the the future militarization concerns of what's going on with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, as you may have heard. Projects being worked on include the invisible ray gun, a shotgun taser, skull-piercing microwaves, long-range acoustics devices, directed energy weapons. I mean, they, they have fancy names. This is an area denial device. But the bottom line is... You know, anytime you hear some politician going on about, well, you know, we don't want weapons of war on our streets. 
They conveniently leave out that uh, the most realistic weapons of war that you're going to encounter on the streets are the ones in the hands of your police force. And that's true right down to the small towns where for some inexplicable reason, police departments now find it in vogue to have, you know, MRAPs, Bearcats and other armored vehicles, which, by the way, they always will will label it with some Orwellian label. And I don't know if they do this on purpose or if this is some kind of psychological programming. Civilian rescue vehicle. Oh, yes. Not an armored assault vehicle, which is what it is used for in its intended purpose. Okay, I'm getting wound up again. Let's go back to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. You bet, Brian. The police and the looters both work for the same people. Last week, the police would arrest you for opening up your business. And this week, they would arrest you for shooting a looter, burning it down. And they're certainly not going to intervene and stop it. Give me give me your take on this, because I want to know um, the people who block roadways when the protesters block roads and and they start to converge on cars, start rocking them like they're going to tip them over, bashing out windows. The people who uh, just go ahead and gun the car on their way through the crowd. Are they morally justified in doing so? Yes, sir. They don't want to be they don't want to be the next Reginald Denny. There you go. I, I shoot all that riffraff. That's I, I noticed that in the news at the bottom of the hour they were reporting on uh, you know this this truck driver in uh, I guess it was in Minneapolis I thirty five was was uh, arrested for driving through a crowd of people and I've seen the video and it's not like it was just a crowd of people standing there hey there's a truck coming through they were climbing all over his truck they were swarming it they were trying to break out the windows yank the doors open if he saw the Reginald Denny footage there's no doubt he did not want to end up. Like Mr. Denny. Well, like I said, they both work for the same scum. The police are garbage. The paid looters are garbage. The people on welfare are garbage. But if you defend your property, the police will arrest you for doing that, too. So I say starve them out. Do not feed a policeman. Do not feed their family. Do not feed a judge. Do not feed the attorney general. Invoke your rights as a store owner. Do not service these people. Do not feed the hand that bites you. Now, wait a minute. You know what? Well, that molests you and kills you. No, forget these people. Okay, you, you you take a harder stance than I do, but I but I I understand. In speaking in general terms, the problem is over policing. Having said that, I'm there are police officers that I'm friends with personally who are good people who don't go out of their way to be badge heavy or to arrest people. I have one friend who's told me I won't arrest anybody unless it's a matter of the, the world would be safer with this person locked up tonight. But would he, but would he come to your trial and rescue you from guns a blazing now? Nah. Nope. He would look the other way and say, damn, it's sorry. I'm sorry. Ah, I don't know. I I, I'm, I'm convinced that there may, there may be other ways other than guns ablazing, but I, I see your point. But I'm, what I'm saying is there are people within the system who are trying to do the best they can, but the system itself has some serious rot. And that's where Agreed. reform has to take place. I, for, I, for one, am very happy to see. I think it's Tom, uh, Congressman uh, Thomas Massey. I think it's either him or Justin Amash who has introduced a bill to, uh, to take qualified immunity away. And I think that is a very good first step in holding individual officers who misbehave accountable rather than letting them hide behind, well, I was just doing my duty. Yeah, that's all right. It's really a state's issue anyway. But then anyway, that goes back to a 
big different discussion. I say we don't feed them. We don't believe in the the imagination that is this uh, whatever we call it. Just stop supporting it mentally, physically, spiritually. Tell them to repent. If they want to stand with us, that's fine. But if I get hauled off, I have friends that are cops too, high school chums. We don't talk much anymore, but not about politics, but are they going to come rescue me from a rogue court? Nah, they won't. They won't. It means giving up their, it means getting a real job and what's left of the private sector. That scares them to death. I don't think it's an either or. And that's, I'm, I'm, I'm disagreeing with you mildly. I don't think it's an either you come and rescue me from court or, you know, you're not really, you know, standing for freedom. I think that there are other ways that they can fight for it. But I'm telling you, there are good guys out there, but the system itself does its best to weed those guys out. They're looked at with suspicion oftentimes because they're not not gung-ho enough. Why didn't you take more scalps today? Why didn't you write more tickets? Sure. Yep. The good cops will get fired, and then they're not a policeman anymore. So, again, like I said, if they just walk off, that solves the problem. If the police stations burn down, well, then they're going to have to come from farther away to molest you. That doesn't keep me awake at night. It's too bad they burnt them down. They should have been closed and auctioned off to the highest bidder. Interesting. All right. Make a motel out of it. Jared, thanks for the call. 801-331-8113. I won't take quite that hard of a stance, but I, I think that there is a problem. In fact, when we come back from the break here in a few minutes, I want to talk about over-policing. There's a great article. This is actually from 2016. And, and again, this doesn't single out, you know, every individual cop is, you know, is just, you know, aching for a chance to go crack some skulls. I don't believe that's the case. I think that most of them do the best they can, but the system in which they're working is increasingly using them as muscle to enforce things that it's questionable that the state should ever be involved in in the first place. So we can we can hack away at the leaves or we can hack at the roots. We'll go to the roots here after the break. Caller, welcome to the show. Yeah, I say we go to the roots. So we got uh, we have this uh, guy who pulled a bow. Have you seen the footage on it? I have. Okay, so what's your take? I have not. Um, I think Robin Hood was uh, perhaps well-intentioned but seriously misguided. For, what do for, you mean by that? For even being near that kind of unrest. He said he went down there, and the reason he had a bow was because he has a felony on his record, so he can't have firearms. Um, I heard he had a, a machete and maybe a hatchet as well, and he said he went down there to help the police, and he was scolding and confronting those protesters. That was a huge mistake. And to get out there and to Why th- was that a mistake? Because, because as one individual... Especially with a bow and arrow, he's he's just well, he's putting I, himself I, I, I in harm's that. way. I mean, but did he pull? I mean, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, Brian, but did he pull the bow out after the they started? What did they do? Jump on his car and start busting the windows and all that stuff? I don't think they were busting the windows before. He was exchanging words with them, but uh, I don't know. I'm just saying I don't think it was a very smart thing to go down there and confront those protesters. They were out for blood in the first place. He gave them what they wanted, a chance to look like victims and a chance to stomp the crap out of him and burn his car, which they did. I'm just saying, I mean, if, if the man wasn't doing anything and had things on him to protect himself. Well, and that's the thing. And- where he got out and confronted the, the protesters, that's where he stopped minding his own business. And now the police are looking for him and wanting to arrest him. Yeah, I, I get that. I think that's, that's where we need to put the pressure on the Salt Lake City Police Department now 
Yeah, I start, you know, because I haven't seen the footage, and I, I really shouldn't comment on it. But I would I encourage would like, you watch it. You see it. Watch it and get back to me, and then let's let's talk about it. I got to take a quick break. We'll be back. We'll talk about over policing. The other side of these messages. This is loving liberty. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. You know, I, I, uh, I'm i worried that I am, uh, I feel like I'm more radical today. And maybe it's because there's this radical thing in the air. You know, the smell of buildings and cars burning, the, the whiff of tear gas. I don't know, it brings out the radical in me, but... If if I'm speaking more stridently than than normal, I'm I'm sorry, but I, I sense the stakes are very high. You probably do as well. And I want to clarify something. Uh, when when Rob called in here a minute ago and asked about the guy with the bow and arrow, um, the guy may have been very well intentioned, but there's something that happens to people when they get into a mob situation. Uh, within a mob, people tend to revert back to a less evolved level. And some people are going to think that's a terribly insensitive thing to say, but I'm, I'm sorry. I've seen enough riot footage over my lifetime to go, people are not behaving in, in a, a form of, of humanity that, that's to be anything to be proud of. They become more primitive, more, tri- more tribal, more animalistic. It's because people behave differently in a mob. That, the term mob mentality has a basis in truth because... What the mob is doing, everybody feels absolved from any guilt, like the uh, you know individual snowflake in the avalanche. Oh, it's not me, it's everybody else that's doing this. So you behave differently when you're running with a mob than you would if you were out there individually having to make those choices. And because of that, you should never depend on mercy from a mob. Every individual is going to want to get their attack in. You're going to end up dead or severely injured. The guy is very lucky that they did not stomp him to a cripple or within an inch of his life that he only had his car taken from him overturned and burned and lost his phone and other possessions i feel kind of bad for him but at the same time i'm saying it was a terrible lapse of judgment to go where the action was because there's so much focus right now on well you know this is all about uh, you know protecting you know black lives it's black lives matter and and you know parents have you had to talk with your kids have you ever told them how they should behave when they are pulled over by the police and you know now if you had a child who was uh, was black would you tell them would you have a different talk with them than than you would with your children if you're white and if so why do you suppose that difference is and you know what i have had that talk with my children And the talk that I have with them is I tell them that the state is an equal threat to anybody, regardless of your skin color. And I tell them to be to be very careful because there's no law that is so small that the state will not exercise force up to and including lethal force to bring you into compliance. Now, this isn't denying that there are some there are some places where there are prejudicial, discriminatory and even racist attitudes. But it's not the sole or the the sum whole equation of, well, you know, racism is the problem here. It's a symptom. But the bigger problem is the state is operating beyond its legitimate bounds. And that's a threat to everybody, not just people of certain pigmentation. There's an article here called Over-Policing is Rooted in Over-Reliance on Politics. It's from Joey Clark, 
Found this on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And it says, following the July 7th, 2016 shooting of several police officers in Dallas, DPD Chief David Brown has been thrust into the national spotlight, and understandably so. Chief Brown not only has a remarkably tragic personal story. In 2010, his 27-year-old son was shot by Dallas police on Father's Day, seven weeks after he became chief of the Dallas Police Department. Now, the reforms he advanced during his tenure as head of the Dallas police have been praised by the likes of Radley Balco as a national model for community policing. So whether Chief David Brown likes it or not, he became the face of law enforcement in the ongoing debate over police brutality. And the article says yesterday, remembering this was written in 2016, he flipped the script of the debate in a way not often suggested by police unions or civil rights activists saying, we're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are. We're just asking us to do too much. Every societal failure we put off on the cops to solve. End quote. Think about what he was saying. Every little problem becomes a police matter. Does that sound familiar? How many times have you yourself said there ought to be a law? This is how it starts. Now, Brown went on to say that since there are not enough, there's not enough funding for mental health or drug addiction, cops are expected to solve the issue. Failing schools and broken homes are supposed to be remedied by the cops as well. Brown suggested, as he called for other parts of our democracy, to help that not all that burden be put on law enforcement. Now, the author of this story, Joey Clark, says, hey, I welcome Chief Brown's suggestion with a qualifier. Indeed, the police are doing too much in this country. Yet, he says, I worry Brown, along with many civil rights activists, are caught in a catch-22. The more they call on our democracy to do something and pass more laws, the more burden will necessarily fall upon the police to enforce such laws. For instance, when the Congressional Black Caucus called for gun control after shootings in Louisiana, Minnesota, and Dallas, did they somehow think their calls for congressional action would lead to fewer intrusive actions by the police? How will passing more laws that make potential criminals out of more Americans ease the tension between police and citizenry? How will stripping Americans of more of their freedoms and wealth to fund government programs lead to greater freedom for the American people? It's almost like there's a correlation between more laws, more violence. So he says, thus, though the police may be the face of law and order behind their blue eyes, rest the marching orders of politicians riddled with this presumption that the law is the best tool for bringing order in a society facing complex problems. Now, he says, let's not give the politicians too much credit, though. They, of course, are elected by the people to presume as much. As Menken wrote, democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. And though I do not think the common people deserve to be the victims of police brutality, Joey Clark says, I'm not surprised that they become the victims of their representative government. Indifferent to freedom, the people have forged their own chains and have given themselves the reins by empowering their government and its agents. So he says, that said, I'd like to amend Chief Brown's statement about the cops being asked to do too much and solve every societal problem. More than relying on the cops, we are relying too much on politics to solve our problems. Every societal failure, real or merely perceived, is expected to be remedied by some new law or political program, whether on the issue of drugs, health, education, broken families, or broken windows. The American people seem unwilling to voluntarily solve such societal problems themselves 
when they are more than capable of doing so. They would rather rely on political action and new laws leading to more enforcement. They are in no mood to spare the populace the proverbial rod of authority, yet we seem spoiled all the same. Somehow the people have forgotten the law is not some benign tool or harmless guideline for the social engineering of society. They have forgotten that the law is always backed by the threat of force. And when a person understandably resists the law, even an unjust law, that person will most likely suffer and potentially die for upsetting the will of the people as carried out by law enforcement. That's the danger of an over-politicized society. So Joey Clark says, I contend if we continue to drift in this direction, becoming more and more obsessed with finding political solutions to our societal failures, the less and less moral, prosperous, and free our society will be. Morality, prosperity, and liberty cannot be fostered at the point of a gun draped in democratic demands. Such things can only come from within the hearts and minds of real flesh-and-blood individuals on the ground, acting to build family, fellowship, and community based upon enthusiastic individual consent. Once family, fellowship, and community come to be represented by the government, then what is sure to follow is the folly of state power. A permission-based society full of entitled masters and passive serfs where what is true, just, and beautiful take a back seat to the trappings of state power and those who wield it. In such a society, consent is not enthusiastic and individual, but passive and general, to the point where violence becomes institutionalized, opaque, and ultimately self-destructive for the vast majority of the population. Such violence is supposedly meant to defend. In taking up our causes, the state transforms our personal, explicit, and voluntary responsibilities to one another into a general, vague, and outright coercive duty hammering our natural plowshares into swords to be wielded by those with state power. And this is no petty point, for when we regard serving our fellow man as a personal responsibility, we posit a society of born-free individuals who are equal under the law and must help one another through voluntary aid and association. On the contrary, when we see our obligation to serve our fellow man as a coercive state duty— we posit a society of rulers and subjects, rulers who need to instill in their subjects a sense of virtue by violently imposing whatever duties the state, as demanded by the people, seems desirable. And in such a society, he says, cops will certainly be asked to do too much. So just remember, most, if not all, societal failures are for us as individuals to solve, not the province of the state. That's a powerful essay. You'll find it in the show notes at lovingliberty.net. Thanks for joining us today.